1: You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Really, in order to find quality care, you often have to be on a wait list that's months long. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about.
0: The aggressive advocates who are looking to overrule Roe for so long, they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up. In this case, there very well may be charges that are appropriate. For example, trying to obstruct an official proceeding of Congress, right? That is unlawful.
1: This is KCBS In-Depth.
3: As we near the end of 2023, we find abortion rights at the forefront of the news. Of course, these aren't necessarily new conversations being had. The ongoing battle between those in support of abortion and reproductive rights and those against have been happening for a long, long time. But with the overturning of Roe versus Wade in 2022 and more recently, challenges to abortion bans in states like Texas and Arizona, the landscape of abortion access is once more in focus, with many questioning what the future will hold. So is it possible to find answers by looking back? Back to a time when underground forms of healthcare had to step in for legal care. Back to a time when community members were the ones turned to for reproductive help. Back to a time where a women's clinic in Oakland became the nexus of health, well-being, and of groundbreaking deep care. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Mary Hughes. So we're going to go on a bit of a journey into history here. And I'm speaking with Angela Hume, author of Deep Care the radical activist who provided abortions, defied the law, and fought to keep clinics open. She's a feminist historian, critic, poet, and also teaches writing at UC Berkeley. Angela, thank you so much for joining me on In Depth.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Mary. I'm really glad to be able to join you.
3: So, you know, in reading this book, one of the first things I noticed was how how the story kind of changed for you on the onset of what you were setting out to do. So how did you find yourself telling this particular story? Because I don't think it's the the path you were initially set out on.
2: Yes, thank you for that question. I didn't set out to write a book about Bay Area radical abortion defense. Um, In fact, and I talk about this a little bit in my book, I'd been writing about feminist American poets. I have a background in literature studies. And many of these poets, um, poets such as Audre Lorde, Judy Braun, Pat Parker, uh, were or are health activists. So I'd been studying health activism more broadly um, at the intersection of the arts. And Pat Parker, the poet, was a Black lesbian feminist revolutionary. She passed away in 1989 after a battle with breast cancer. And I'd been trying to learn about her life and work for the book I thought I was writing. And in the process of my research, I came across the fact that she had worked at an abortion clinic in Oakland for 10 years. She was a director at Women's Choice Clinic. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting. I wonder what the story is there. So I tracked down Lindsey Comey, who was the longtime director of that clinic, Women's Choice. And I asked Lindsay if she would be willing to meet with me in Oakland and tell me about her experience working with the poet Pat Parker. And Lindsay kindly agreed to speak with me. And after we talked, she started introducing me to more people who had worked at Women's Choice Clinic over the years. And it turned out, interestingly, that Women's Choice Clinic had all of these connections to the arts community, which was so interesting to me since I'm a poet myself and I'm involved in the arts community in the Bay Area. So that was really the turning point for me. It was the point when I pivoted and started to become a feminist historian. And I started to learn all about Women's Choice Clinic and the West Coast-led network of feminist women's health centers that Women's Choice was a part of. Um, along with the gynecological and abortion self-help movement um, through oral history interviews with activists who were there. And I thought at first that maybe I could write an article or a little pamphlet or something like that about the story of the clinic. But then I began to realize that I was uncovering this decades-long movement history that – you know, encompass not only Women's Choice Clinic, but also I learned an abortion underground and a militant clinic defense coalition. And so, you know, just like that, my research project became a book project. And I spent five years listening to abortion workers and abortion, abortion defenders share stories with me about their work. Sometimes, um, you know, every day for days on end, I was, I was talking to activists about their work and the project just, it completely took over my life.
3: Deep care, um, in the context of this story that you're telling, which you know you bring up self help and what that means, what is the context of those of those terms? It's because we we hear self help all the time, and maybe we even hear the terminology of deep care
2: in some form. But what does it
3: mean in the context of this book?
2: Yes, absolutely. I think when we hear self help, we think about the pop culture idea, which is a neoliberal idea that you can like, you know, self-realize through your individual consumer choices, right? And that's not the self-help that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the radical political movement. So briefly, in the 1970s, starting in the early 1970s, I should say, lay people who worked at feminist women's health centers like Oakland Women's Choice and lay people who worked outside of clinics in underground small groups, which I'll talk more about in a second, called their feminist health education work self-help. So for them, all of this work was self-help. The movement was working class led. Um, It was influenced by left movements of the 60s, like civil rights, feminist consciousness raising, um, the Black Panther Party, and Black radicalism more broadly. Um, so, as I said before, I'd been researching the Women's Choice Clinic and um, abortion law was imploding. And a couple of years into my research, some of the multi generational activists that I had started to connect with um, decided amongst themselves that it was time to come forward about some of the underground work that they had done. And what they told me was that from the early 1970s into the 2000s, um, during years when You know, abortion was a constitutionally protected right. They had learned and practiced gynecology and abortion outside the walls of clinics, um, like in living rooms and bedrooms. And in their secret underground self help groups, as they called them, they learned how to do things like examine their cervixes and identify possible sexually transmitted infections, um, how to track their fertility. Um, how to do pelvic exams, how to size the uterus. Uh, Critically, they also learned how to perform abortions. And what they used to perform these abortions was a very simple suction device that they put together themselves. And it was built out of um, tubing, a syringe to create suction, a mason jar, um, and a sterile cannula. And they became proficient in performing these early manual section abortions for each other and for people in their communities. And they called the procedure menstrual extraction. So to get good at it, they would meet regularly to practice sectioning out the contents of their non-pregnant uteruses. And crucially, I learned that these underground self-help groups in the Bay Area relied on health workers at Women's Choice for access to medical knowledge and training and supplies. And the self helpers in the community collaborated with these clinic workers at Women's Choice to effectively transfer restricted knowledge about gynecology and abortion to lay people. So let's talk about the clinic itself.
3: Tell me, tell me about the clinic. Tell me about its beginnings and what it provided for people then and as time went on.
2: Sure, absolutely. I. I'm referring to this clinic as the Women's Choice Clinic, um, kind of as an abbreviated um, title, but the nonprofit containers were the Oakland Feminist Women's Health Center and then later, later the West Coast Feminist Health Project. So the clinic did start out as the Oakland Feminist Women's Health Center, and it was a living room health center in a tiny rental house. Um, A 19-year-old at the time named Laura Brown started this health center, and she'd come up from LA where she'd been studying self-help with her mother, Carol Downer, one of the movement's founders. And then in 1973, after the Roe v. Wade ruling, Laura opened an above-ground licensed abortion clinic that was called Women's Choice, and that clinic operated until 2009 in Oakland. So Women's Choice, once again, was part of a network of laypeople-run feminist women's health centers. And the very first feminist women's health center was founded in 1971 in Los Angeles. And the clinic in Oakland, Women's Choice, was at the heart of just like a whole bunch of radical lay health care and health justice stuff that was happening in the Bay at the time. It was a cousin, for example, of the Berkeley Free Clinic, which had been established in 1969. So the clinic, Women's Choice, became this hub for radical feminism. It was this very radical intersectional place where staff were mostly working class, many were women of color, uh, many were parenting, and many were lesbian or queer identified. And you could go to the clinic for abortion care, certainly, um, and also for sexual health education to learn about self help um, in a participatory clinic setting, uh, which was what self help meetings were called in the clinic setting. Um, you could learn how to do a cervical exam or a breast exam, how to get birth control, um, how to get STI screening and um, learn about STIs, including HIV and HIV prevention. Um, At a certain point you could get a vasectomy at Women's Choice Clinic. And starting in the 1980s, you could even buy sperm and get help with self insemination. And I have an entire section of a chapter about the sperm bank. Um, that was housed by Women's Choice Clinic, the first to serve single women and lesbians in the United States. Um, Starting in the 1990s, you could obtain a medication abortion with mifepristone and misoprostol through a clinical trial at Women's Choice before that medication was FDA-approved for abortion. And into the 2000s at Women's Choice, you could get harm reduction support and resources, including female condoms and clean needles, um, if you were queer, if you were uninsured, if you were a pregnant minor, if you didn't speak English, if you were HIV positive, a woman, a man, a trans person, you could go to Women's Choice Clinic and receive healthcare. care. Um, Women's Choice also offered a internship program. So you could go to volunteer or work and learn about Um, you know, phlebotomy and pathology and abortion counseling, um, how to assist during a procedure, how to examine products of conception. Um, You could also learn about menstrual extraction at the clinic and and a lot more. Um, You could access medical supplies that you could then take into the community. Um, and you could also plug into organizing at Women's Choice. In the 1980s, the clinic became the nexus for a clinic defense coalition that was called Bay Area Coalition for Reproductive Rights, or Bay Corps, um, that was formed to respond to the increasingly militant attacks by the anti-abortion movement on abortion clinics. So Women's Choice over the years was just this very dynamic place. Um, and I would say that one thing Women's Choice did over all of the years Um, of its operation was center informed consent and autonomy of patients. And that was really, really important. Um, And it was groundbreaking.
3: KCBS's In-Depth will return after this break. In my reading uh, of all the stories that you were able to pull together uh, from every aspect and time period of of the Women's Choice Clinic, um, mm-hmm. is that it, it was very much by the community and for the community, and mm-hmm. that that was an aspect that I I wonder, you know, about where we are now when it when it comes to health and well being and what's provided for people. Um, So how important was a place like this clinic and, and the networks that it moved within to building community, because that's such a huge part of what this story is.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much. I I'm excited to speak to this question. It's a great question. Um, you know, I think the story of Bay area abortion defense teaches us about how to build community power. Um, The feminists that I interviewed for my book taught me about the power of small group work and community-based work, really, you know, the power of we, right? And just to go back to your earlier question of what I call deep care, um, which to my mind is the principle that's really at the heart of abortion self-help and radical abortion defense more broadly. Um, Through my research, through my conversations, I learned, I came to see that deep care takes time and involves... um, really learning how to do intimate relationships differently. Um, It involves acknowledging that the way we share power and spread power is by taking care of both each other and ourselves. And deep care is powerful because it's what we can do and what we're always already doing in our daily lives. Um, It's about unsettling the dynamics of dominance and submission and policing and control um, and through often seemingly small quotidian interactions. And deep care is also about learning how to do things. So, you know, through hands on study, abortion self help groups facilitated community based learning and knowledge production and transformation in the process. And when we learn how to do this, how to do what I call in the book deep care, um, we can become very empowered. And we learn how to do deep care through practice, um, putting ourselves out there physically. So I would say that my book is fundamentally a story about how people survived a half century of political oppression and cultivated community power despite that oppression. So during the last 50 years, you know, the state and the far right have waged a war on reproductive rights as we know. Um, and it was radical activists, black radicals, queer anarchists, socialists, communists, labor organizers, harm reductionists who put their bodies on the line to learn and practice and teach and defend sexual and reproductive autonomy. So, you know, working with other people can feel difficult and it takes patience and practice, but when we do it successfully, we can build community power from the inside. And I would say that a key insight of the movement history in this book is that community power is public health. Community power translates to public health.
3: So as you were saying, you know, that this is something that it has far-reaching uh, impact with what it can create and what it can provide, um, and it and it goes beyond a place. Obviously, this is something that is about people and what people are uh, open and willing to do for others and for themselves, especially. But the the clinic itself did have a an end date, so to speak. Um, so what what brought on the closing of the clinic? Because you know, mm-hmm. it's not like the work has ended, but but the place itself is not there. So w- what right. changed over the years?
2: Right. Well, Women's Choice Clinic did manage to keep its doors open for almost 40 years. Um, it fought back even during the hostile war years of the 1990s, as Women's Choice Clinic director Lindsay Comey described them to me. Um, In 1994, the Federal FACE Act, or Freedom Access to Clinic Entrances Act, was passed. And this was because things had gotten really bad for abortion seekers and abortion workers. Um, You know, during the first half of 1994, more than half of abortion clinics experienced death threats, stalkings, bombings, invasions, arsons, and blockades. And by the end of that year, 1994, there had been four murders and eight attempted murders of abortion workers. So the FACE Act made it a federal crime to block a clinic's entrance. And also around that time, in the mid-1990s, the feds intervened by putting cops, like local police, federal marshals, FBI agents, um, in and around clinics, uh, which required health workers to cooperate with them. And also around that time, clinics started to face skyrocketing insurance premiums as a result of, um, you know, the bombings and invasions and arsons and blockades that I had been talking about. And in California, Medi-Cal, the state public insurance program, medi under managed care, the managed care model, um, began to require more and more administrative labor. And began to provide smaller reimbursements at the same time for services rendered. Um, Lindsay Comey told me about how she would sometimes wonder when she would go to work in the 1990s, like whether she should be wearing her bulletproof vest. And she often did wear a bulletproof vest. She said um, life as an abortion provider during that time was life under occupation and the war was at your door. Despite everything that happened in the 1990s, it wasn't the war years that shuttered Women's Choice. It was the 2008 financial crisis when California froze Medi-Cal reimbursements. Um, And that was the death knell for Women's Choice Clinic. They couldn't get the reimbursements they relied on to sustain, and therefore they couldn't pay rent. Um, And I'll just say today, it continues to be very, very difficult for independent abortion clinics to stay open. And it's these independent clinics that provide the majority of abortions in the U.S., um, along with nearly all of later abortions. Um, An organization called the Abortion Care Network just reported a couple of days ago that 23 independent abortion clinics were forced to close in 2023 on top of 42 that were forced to close in 2022, the year of the Dobbs decision.
3: You mentioned the Dobbs decision, and that, of course, led to the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And as I spoke of at the beginning of this program, this conversation about abortion and re- reproductive rights is back in sharp focus. And all this brings to mind a-, a question that you ask early on in this book. And I'm curious about the answer you'd have. You know, what lessons can be learned? from all that you've researched and what of it is applicable to what's going on today?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, at the end of my book, I do try to synthesize and name specific lessons of abortion self-help and clinic defense. Um, I you know, went through my research and my interviews in a very deliberate kind of systematic way to call Lessons. And um, inevitably, the way we interpret these lessons will continue to evolve as the legal landscape continues to evolve rapidly. Um, but I'll tell you about just a couple of the lessons. Um, before I do that, I'll say, you know, today in 21 states, abortion is banned or severely restricted. And the news just broke that the Supreme Court will hear a case that seeks to further restrict mifepristone, the abortion pill. Um, and restricting mifepristone is currently the focus of the anti-abortion movement. Um, it has been FDA approved for more than 23 years and has been proven to be extremely safe, thanks in part to the extensive clinical trials that clinics like Women's Choice ran um, all throughout the 1990s. And just the other day, we saw the Texas Supreme Court rule that a woman, her name was Katie Cox, could not have an abortion even though her fetus had been diagnosed with a fatal condition. And the court, the Supreme Court in Texas said that her pregnancy did not seriously threaten her health or life, and therefore did not qualify for an exception to the state's ban, even though she'd gone to the ER a few times. Um, and her doctor had said that carrying the pregnancy to term um, would risk her health and possibly her future ability to have children. So this case, um, I think, exemplifies the phenomenon of politicians blatantly, unapologetically, Intervening in the delivery of healthcare to achieve political goals. And the implications for public health in this country are so grave, uh, not to mention for the individual life chances of people like Katie Cox. And while we know that most Americans don't want laws restricting abortion, restricting the decisions they make about their own bodies, um, including abortions, um, and despite some wins like Ohio's new constitutional amendment to protect abortion. It's the U.S. anti-abortion lobby that has the power over these politicians who are making these calls. Um, And when the legal landscape is this draconian, you know, what do you do? So one of the lessons of radical abortion defense that I discuss at the end of Deep Care is the lesson that we must make the referral. So, you know, history shows us that one essential key to safe abortion is the referral to knowledgeable, trustworthy, good care. And for centuries, the referral has been this very important tool of underground abortion workers. So plancpills.org is an online information campaign that I just encourage everyone to familiarize themselves with. It shows us what a sophisticated referral program can look like. Um, Another lesson of my book is work with many hands. So through studying Bay Area abortion self-help and clinic defense, I learned about how small groups of people who can work closely, securely, and dynamically together can really make revolutionary change. And that's why learning how to work in a small group is truly one of the most important political skills out there. Um, You know, what can you do with your hands, right? So um, a small group could certainly start a self-help group like the activists in my book did, but that's not the only way that you can work with many hands. Um, a small group could organize to expose a fake clinic, for example, what are sometimes called crisis pregnancy centers. Um, these are anti-abortion centers that try to trick people into believing that they're abortion providers when, in fact, they um their sole purpose is to frighten and shame people away from having abortions. Um, there are quite a few of them out there. Um, a small group could organize a demonstration, right? Um, research, like who or which groups are funding local fake clinics. Um, There's a website called exposefakeclinics.com that contains a lot of really helpful information for anyone who's interested in learning more about the phenomenon of fake clinics. And one self-helper in my book, whose pseudonym is Max and who practiced abortion self-help for many, many years in the Bay Area, said something to me that I just wanna convey to you. She said, I want readers of your book to know that they can do this wherever they are. And Max is talking about self-help and um, man- menstrual extraction or manual vacuum aspiration, abortion specifically. But of course, the this could be so much more, right? Um, you can do this wherever you are, right? It's about doing intimate relationships differently. It's about learning how to defend our communities from inside of our communities. Um, it's about learning how to see and saying no to the ideology of health denial, exclusion punishment and abandonment that the far right has really embraced and we can do these things wherever they wherever we are um, lindsey comey once again women's choices longtime director offered me a lot of really powerful kernels of insight over the course of our interviews and i wanted to just end with one of them um, after the dobbs ruling lindsey comey had this to say to me The truth is we have lost a theocracy. So don't act like we have democracy, act like what it is. Arise and start to make a difference because it's now or never, and we won't leave anyone behind.
3: You can find this episode and past episodes of In-Depth online at kcbsradio.com. You can also hear the episodes on the Odyssey app. Download the app on your smartphone and favorite KCBS radio. Thanks for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Mary Hughes.
1: KCBS in depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit KCBSRadio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.
0: His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician.